Today we are reading out of Psalm 126, if you'd like to turn there. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercourses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed. He will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Pastor Kate. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing in our Lenten series called Ashes to Ashes, the Lenten Path to Hope. And this season is marked with ashes as a symbol because ashes is a representation of what we see in Genesis 3, that we are made from the dust. And so without the breath of God, without His grace and mercy in our lives from ashes, uh, from dust we came to dust we will return, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But with the presence of God, with the grace and love of Jesus, we have been given a hope beyond ashes that brings us to a place of resurrection and new life. And so this season is marked with fasting. It's marked with repentance, which is why we did the Anglican prayer of repentance. Um, And it's marked with uh, uh, kind of acknowledging grief and lament and sorrow. Uh, other, Other traditions, they call this Lenten season the bright, sad season where we enter into kind of a knowingness of a knowingness. That's a made-up pastor word. Um, a knowing of kind of like sorrow and grief in the world, but also clinging to that brightness, that hope that it is not the end of all things. Um, and this passage, like uh, any psalm which deals with suffering, kind of begs this philosophical question for us, uh, why does suffering exist? And it's a question that probably has worthy responses, Uh, But none of them, when someone was in the midst of suffering, are all that comforting, right? In the middle of suffering, uh, people don't want platitudes, even if those platitudes are true. There was this guy in the Old Testament, his name was Job, and uh, he experienced pretty much every kind of suffering imaginable. And uh, at the end of this story, we are kind of left to, uh, to wonder what the answer to his question is. And all of his friends bring all of the world's platitudes to him to try to reconcile why this is happening. Uh, but the Lord honors, eventually, honors the humility of Job when Job admits that there may be questions that he will never know the answer to. Like, why did I suffer? So we aren't going to tackle that question today, uh, why does suffering exist? Because the fact remains, it does. It does exist. And although the Bible may be a little more elusive around answering why suffering exists, it is not silent on how we show up to that suffering. In fact, it has a lot to say about our response to suffering and pain. Because suffering is not an if, but a when. It's a when. Jesus told his disciples, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. His brother James later wrote in his letter to the church, consider it pure joy 
when you face trials of many kinds. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and speak all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. This is a when kind of thing. So when you and I experience suffering or trials, when we feel like the hits just keep coming, we should know that this is inevitable. But we have been given a hope, a hope that our suffering, even when it leads to our death, is not the end of the story, that there is a promise of restoration and redemption that awaits us. And even while we are suffering, somehow, mysteriously, we are participating in the story of God's redemption. So today, we're going to look at the context of this passage, and we're going to uh, see what truths of hope this psalm gives to us as we peer back in time to another people in another place in another era and see what wisdom the Lord brought to them and receive what He has brought to us. But before we do that, let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we thank You that we get to be here in Your presence. Holy Spirit, would You come? Would You fill the room? Would You speak to our hearts and minds? As this candle is lit before us, may it be a symbol that You are present, that You are alive, and that You are moving in our midst. May your word be a light that guides our path. May you make us more like you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So this psalm is interesting because it's a psalm of ascents or a pilgrimage song. And the idea is that it's meant to be sung by people as they are making their way to worship at the temple. It was to prepare their hearts for what was going to take place there. Now, nailing down the exact time that any psalm was written is a little tricky because they aren't necessarily organized in chronological order, and even the events they reference are not necessarily happening at the time that the psalm is being written. Um, They're more organized by their themes and their genres. But an educated guess is that this psalm was written sometime after the Babylonian exile. Again, the Jews were uh, uh, conquered by the Babylonians and later other empires and the Persians. And during this time where they're in exile and they're scattered, uh, we call it the exile period, the period of the exile. And these Jews were taken away from their homes and their, their, their land. They're taken away from their, their culture and their traditions and their religion. And they're struggling to maintain their, their identity amidst uh, the, the people of exile. They're, they're trying to remain faithful to God. And eventually, after a long time, there's this Persian king who allows some of the Jews to go back to their land and to start to rebuild their culture, their faith, their traditions, their temple. But as they settle back into this land... This is several generations past when they used to live there, and they're in a bit of this identity crisis trying to discern, how do we start over? What does that even look like? Uh, What do we need to do in order to see the promises of God come to pass in our lifetime? So the first half of this psalm, it looks back fondly on the memories of when times were good, Right? And the people request, like, Lord, can't it be like it was back then? When it seems like we were always laughing. When our songs were always songs of joy. When everything felt right. When even the people around us, they looked at us and they had to admit that you were good because of what you had done for us. They kind of look back with fondness on the good old days. And if you're anything like me, Perhaps you have these seasons like this, right? I I sometimes find myself, particularly during challenging times, looking back 
Maybe when life felt simpler. Maybe when I felt younger, right? It's interesting, in, in verses 1 through 3 of this psalm, in our Bibles, they're translated as uh, uh, past tense. Um, you, we were like this. You have done this. But the modern Jewish translation actually renders this in the future tense. Um, apparently, the, the grammar is a bit difficult to nail down, especially in Hebrew poetry. Um, but perhaps this was actually intentional. What the language would look like is a little more like this in the modern Jewish translation. When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we see it as a dream. Our mouths shall be filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then shall they say among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. How happy we are. When it comes to poetry, I'm pretty dense. Like, I don't read a lot of poetry. I don't get most of it. Um, But I sort of like the idea that the grammar in this passage could go either way. It alludes to this idea that our joy and our sorrow are always in front of us and always behind us in this normal rhythm, this kind of ebb and flow of life. But if you're anything like me, happiness is something that I'm trying to to keep. I've kind of deceived myself into thinking that I can somehow make happiness a permanent state, that I can cling to happy but that's not real. Happiness is not an eternal thing. It's a a temporary feeling. Right now in school, um, we're studying some of the spiritual principles of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He was this nobleman and a soldier in the 16th century uh, in Spain who was wounded in battle by a cannonball, blew out his leg, which is, ouch, wild. and during his time of recovery, he, you know, he kind of had like a, probably a real come-to-Jesus moment, like, hey, my leg just got blown off. Maybe I need to re-examine. You know that scene in Star Wars? Like, go home and rethink your life. It was one of those moments. Um, moving right along. So he gets hurt, and while he's in recovery, um, he kind of redevotes his life to Christian spirituality and education, and uh, he creates this framework for suffering and joy, which he refers to as consolation and desolation. Briefly summarize, they're pretty simple concepts. Consolation is the state of spiritual comfort and joy, right? It's this sense of closeness with God. It involves feeling a lot of peace and gratitude. I find like, I feel like I have more faith. Um, I feel like I have more hope. I'm full of love. And uh, during times of consolation, we experience this deep sense of God's presence, like we can feel him with us, and there's this genuine desire for us to grow with him. That's, that's a time of consolation. And then on the flip side, a time of desolation is the opposite. It's spiritual discomfort. It's a sense of darkness and deep separation from God. We feel sadness. We feel doubt. We feel diminished in our capacity to hope and to have faith and to love. And during times of desolation, we experience this real lack of desire to grow in our faith. Um, We have these feelings of inner turmoil. We feel distant from God. And this is also when temptations and doubts are more prevalent in our souls. But Ignatius, like most of the biblical authors, viewed these times of spiritual desolation actually as challenging and as difficult as they are, as opportunities for spiritual growth and discernment, a deepening of reliance on God's grace. I don't know how to explain it, but in the darkest times of my life, on the other side of it, there's been more trust in God, 
Um, while I was in class, the professor invited us to create an image that depicted how these times of consolation and desolation feel to us when, they're in, when we're in them. So I quickly uh, went to this graphic design website and I threw these images together and this is what I submitted as this assignment in my class. Um, during times of consolation on the left, I feel this sense of wonder. I'm in awe of the majestic, vast nature of God's creation. I, lo- I love space. I love sci-fi. I love particle physics and stuff. And so when I'm just geeking out with God, I feel like I'm on an adventure with him through the vastness of his creation. Um, like just James Webb Telescope, me and Jesus. We can have a really good time. And uh, I feel this wonder, this cosmic wonder, right? But when I'm in desolation, it's almost like the polar opposite occurs, and this wide open space just crunches in around me. And I feel very isolated and alone. I'm held captive by my own thoughts and my own anxiety. That's all I can see. I suffer from these chronic migraines, and this is kind of how they feel to me when I'm having them. It's like this darkness just kind of closes in around me, and it's trying to block out the sun and keep me, keep me isolated. Now, typically, I don't feel that good all the time, and I don't feel that bad all the time. These are a representation of the peaks and valleys of my spiritual life, and sometimes they happen really far apart, and other times, counterintuitively, they happen really close together. Um, an example of a time of desolation might be when my wife and I were experiencing our season of miscarriages. There was this high amount of discouragement and stress and worry that seemed to plague us and close in around us. Um, these seasons can also happen to us when there are sins in our lives that are going unchecked. Maybe there are, are, are addictions happening or behaviors or relationships that we know are sinful, and we kind of do this to ourselves. We create our own suffering. And an example of consolation might be honestly like how I feel most Sundays when I'm here with all of you, and I'm not just saying that. Like, I go and I park my car a few streets away, and as I'm walking through the neighborhood, I just feel this sense of gratitude and privilege that God allows me to participate in the kingdom in this way. It's amazing. Or like when my wife and I are in a, in a really good season where we feel like we're in rhythm and we feel like we're, we're close and intimate and we know each other and, and we're laughing a lot, right? When I have a really good day with my kids, um, when, I'm, when I'm experiencing a lot of quality time with friends, and amidst it all, there's this gratitude that undergirding all of it is God's goodness and grace making it all happen. I want you to take a minute. I'm going to stop talking, and I just want you to take a minute to draw these images mentally. What does it feel like for you when you're in a season of consolation? When you and God feel really close, when you feel this sense of joy, what, what do you picture? What is it, what is it like for you? It's, it might be very different than my picture. Um, and then when you're in times of desolation, how does that feel? Just take a moment and, and dreamscape that with the Holy Spirit. For some of us, perhaps it didn't take much imagining, right? 
Perhaps you find yourself in a season of desolation right now. You're experiencing loss. You're experiencing struggle. Um, For some of you, maybe you're in a time of consolation and things feel like they're going really well and you feel like uh, you feel close to God. How many of you, your your places of consolation, like Greg, had a lot of Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out? Is that (laughs) anyone else? What you just kind of mapped out with, with God, this is the dynamic that the Israelites are wrestling with in this psalm on a societal level. They're looking back on their time of consolation and comfort with God, and they're remembering the joy and the laughter and the closeness they feel with God. But the second half of this psalm, there's this turn, and we see that this song is actually a sadder song than the intro would suggest. This psalm is a cry for help. It says, restore us, O Lord. This implies that they find themselves not in a season of consolation, but rather in a season of desolation. This turn implies that they feel like much of what they remember to be true of God with life with God that's missing. Perhaps it's been a while since they've had like a belly laugh with God. Perhaps their songs recently have not been so joyful. Perhaps the people around them aren't saying, look, he has done great things for them. Perhaps they're mocking them and saying, well, if your God is so good, why would he allow you to endure this? The psalmist cries out, restore us, O Lord, bring us back to this place of joy. And verse 4 says, restore us like streams in the Negev. So the Negev is this southern region of Israel. It's this desert. And um, it's a very dry part of the world. And so there were rivers and streams that flowed through there that during the time of rain, they would flood, they would swell, and they would bring water to the agriculture, much needed water so that the crops could thrive. This is why we see these imagery in the scriptures of, of those who obey the Lord. They're like trees that are planted next to streams of living water. It's this source of life. But these seasonal freshets that flowed through the Negev, they were temporary. They weren't constant. They would swell for a time, and then they would recede. Seasons of spiritual consolation and comfort, they are temporary, as are seasons of desolation and discouragement. So the question is not if and when, it's, or it's not if, but it's when. What are we to do in desolation? How do we show up to those times of grief and pain? Like we talked about earlier, the psalm is a psalm of a sense. It's a pilgrimage song. So we're singing it while we're on the way to worship. And there's this incredible picture of the people who are journeying to the temple. And while they do so, they are weeping. And the psalmist, again, uses his agricultural language that they're sowing bags of seed on the ground, on this desolate ground, and they are, as they weep, watering the ground with their very tears. In Psalm 56, there's this beautiful picture that I've never forgotten. It says that that, uh, the psalmist cries out and says, you have put my tears in a bottle. If you're like me, sometimes maybe we see God as like indifferent or calloused or maybe even amused by our pain, but that's not what the scriptures tell us about the character of God. Psalm 34 says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Jesus always drew near to those who were suffering. He always reached out and touched the leper. Always sought out the blind, sought out the poor, sought out those who were on the outskirts of society. This was what Jesus did. And so I, in my life, have learned and am learning 
to see suffering as holy ground. For pain is a land that my Savior knows very well. The prophet Isaiah tells me that he is a man of suffering, that he's acquainted with my pain. So when I enter into the land of suffering, when I'm brought into the exile of pain, I find that my Jesus is already there waiting for me. And that in those seasons, we share a closeness. But we don't really like pain because it does, it's not nice. We don't like it, right? And our culture is set up in a way where we can medicate a lot of our... Now, I'm not saying medication is bad. I have chronic migraines. I'm very grateful for painkillers. But we have a lot of options to distract us from our pain and our grief. Lots of ways to medicate and to numb even our emotional despair. But James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his letter, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that this testing of your faith will develop endurance. And that endurance, when it has its full effect, will bring you to maturity, will make you whole, lacking nothing. Friends, perhaps it is okay for us to trauma bond with Jesus. Because those who have been through similar kinds of suffering, we gain a certain understanding and intimacy with one another, right? It, it, the miscarriages were a great example of this. We found out that the statistics, it's like one in four women have experienced a miscarriage or will experience one. And we never talk about it. And when we started sharing openly about it, people would come up to us and say, thank you. I have this grief that I, I don't have a box for it. I don't know what to do with it. And so it felt good to know that we weren't alone. Or when I've talked about mental health from the platform or when anyone that you know has shared something that you're going through, that what you're, you, you've been through that too. There's an intimacy that's created. And the man of suffering, the man of sorrows, our Savior on the cross, he's able to meet you there, whatever it is. When we are experiencing deep pain and anxiety or depression or suffering, friends, we need to make our way to the presence of God. Even if we have to get there watering the ground with our tears. And the cool thing is that the Spirit of God lives within you and lives within me. So you and I, we have become the temple. So when we drag ourselves to worship, we are dragging ourselves in the pain, in the times of pain, kicking and screaming if we must. We are dragging ourselves to the awareness that God is with us, that He's here in the middle of it. Friends, desolation is a time not to back away from God, but to lean into the rhythms of remembering His goodness and His presence. Because we're not going to be able to feel His presence sometimes, but we need to remember that He's there. And that process by which we faithfully sow with tears and faithfully water the ground with that worship unto God, when we then return to that place in a new season, when we come to worship and travel that same path, we find that the Lord has produced a harvest, that that seed has become a crop, that he has been faithful to leverage our pain to produce new life. We return to that scene of the crime and we bear witness to the fact that God makes all things new. When we once sowed with tears, now we reap with songs of joy. 
there's this beautiful tradition that we participated in last year that we'll do again this year called blooming the cross, flowering the cross, blooming the cross. The cross is disgusting, truly. It is an execution torture tool. What it represents is offensive, and yet we adorn our buildings with it. Why? Because Jesus was somehow, when he hung on that cross, able to leave behind such an act of love and mercy that this torture implement becomes a thing of beauty. That something horrible can become something beautiful. When one has surveyed the barren ground of desolation, how much more abundant is the joy that we experience when we reap the harvest. Where once there was death, there is now an abundance of life. The biblical scholar James Mays, he wrote this about this psalm. He said, the psalm is also designated for Sundays in Advent and Lent. There you go. Heard in those seasons, it speaks of the great change that occurs in the birth and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it teaches that only those who move forward, who move toward Christmas and Easter with tears of repentance and need may enter into the joy of the great thing God does for us. Friends, we have to move through the tears and the grief and the pain to really appreciate the resurrection. We have to sit in the ashes of our own failure to really appreciate the gift of new life. And again, sometimes these seasons of desolation and these seasons of sorrow are of our own making. Sometimes it's our own sin which has generated this brokenness in our lives. And sometimes it's the sin of others. It's outside agents that create suffering. But the response is the same. It's ashes. Whether it's repented, repentance or it's grief, we must drag ourselves, weeping if we must, to worship, to the presence of God. We've been showing this graph the last couple of weeks and figured third time, why not? This is us. We sin, and sin Sin harms us and it harms others, and that creates brokenness in the world. When we experience brokenness, our first instinct is to numb it or avoid it or to get through it in our own power, and therefore we sin. And that sin causes more harm, which creates more brokenness, and the cycle goes on and on and on. But friends, we have a different choice. Ashes. On the next slide, when we experience sin, we remember that without him we are dust. We turn from that sin and we repent. And when we repent of our sin, that's brokenness avoided. (laughs) Some of it. And in our brokenness, rather than trying to numb it or medicate it or, or get through it in our own power, we bring it to God in worship. And we grieve. It's ashes. And in that grief, he transforms it into new life. When we grieve and when we repent the sin and brokenness of the world, we get out of this cycle. Friends, the more you and I repent of our sin, the less brokenness we create in the world. And the more you and I grieve the brokenness of the world, the less we run to sin. This is the transformative power of the gospel. And again, a psalm of ascents 
or going to the temple in worship, if we want to experience the joy of the Lord, we have to bring our trail of tears to the presence of God so that by his goodness, we might witness the transformative power of his love, that he can take our tears and turn them to joy, take our desolation and comfort us. And this is something that becomes a rhythm of the Christian life. And each time we faithfully show up to suffering and bring it to God, the more we can anticipate that joy set before us. So friends, if you are in a time of consolation, of great joy and happiness, it's with compassion in my heart that I say it will not last. And if you are in a time of deep desolation and grief and sorrow, it's with great hope that I tell you it will not last. But our peace in the Lord hope we have in him, our faith in him, a joy that goes deeper than pleasure, those things, that's the through line. That's the steadiness of our God. I'm going to give us a few minutes to reflect, and we're going to throw a very familiar passage on the screen. It's Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 is really cool because it takes us through the shepherd's journey through the first half. Shepherds had to take their flocks all over the geography. They had to go from green pastures and quiet waters. Sometimes they had to go through dark valleys. This was seasonal and it was normal. It was a rhythm of shepherding life, of a sheep's life. At the end of this passage here, it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Again, the grammar is tricky here, but actually what this could be translated as is more likely, I will continually come back to the house of the Lord forever. David, the shepherd boy, is acknowledging that there are ebbs and flows. Sometimes there are streams and fields, and other times there are dark valleys. But in the middle of it all is this table set before us in the presence of our enemies. And so what we do in the midst of the generosity of God is we keep coming back to remember God's goodness. So I'm going to give us three minutes We'll just reflect on this psalm together, and then I'll come back up, and we'll take communion. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us now? Holy Spirit, would you breathe life on these words? Would you guide us? In your holy name we pray. Amen.